When I was in college, um, one summer I was living with my parents, and uh, I also had a friend who was living with me, and we were preparing to uh, cook dinner for um, a bunch of friends. And there were going to be some girls there that we liked, and so there was a, this was an important meal. And so we decided to cook. Uh, we were going to grill some um, some steaks, and then we were going to uh, saute some zucchini. And I had seen it before where you, you know, put some zucchini in some aluminum foil and season it and put stuff, you know, oil on it or whatever, put it on the grill, and it, I'd seen it work well. And so I was like, this is a good idea. And so we decided to, to cook this. And so uh, we decided to do a practice cook before we actually cooked for the real people because we were not experienced cookers. Um, and so uh, we, we made the stuff and... Um, the zucchini didn't turn out exactly like we thought it would. And so we were kind of confused by that, but we were just kind of eating it. Neither one of us, my friend or I, wanted to admit, like, this isn't as good as we thought. Um, and then my mom came out, and because we were using their grill, and um, my mom came out and she said, this looks good. Um, you know this is cucumber, right? <laughs> and uh, no. Um, we did not. We did not realize that. So we, the goal was to cook zucchini. The problem is we just, we didn't know what zucchini was. And um, the reason I tell you that story is because I think that it's possible for the same thing to happen with the church. Um, you can set out to like, we're going to build a church. We're going to come to church. We're going to serve in the church. We're going to do church stuff. And you can be working on a lot of stuff and never actually know, but what is a church? I don't know. Yeah, it's just, we go. And the first time that I realized that that was possible, I was um, living in St. Louis. I had served as a pastor for about six years at that point in different churches. This was one of them as the high school pastor here. And in St. Louis, though, I had been recruited to help replant this church. And it was a church that had fallen on hard times, lots of older people in the congregation. There was also this young, struggling church plant. And so this local group of pastors asked me to come and help these two churches come together as one new church. It's called a church replant. And so I agreed to do that. And while I was working on all of these different things, I realized, you know what? I know a lot of things that a church is supposed to do. I've been part of a lot of healthy churches, a lot of churches that have grown tremendously. I know a lot of things that a church is supposed to do, but I don't really know what a church is. What is it? And that led me down a path and a journey that I've been on now for about four years of just re-clarifying, even for myself, what is this thing that, that we're part of? Like, if anybody should know what a church is, it's the guy who's like, hey, you should come to church. You come to church on Sunday? Hey, it's great to have you at our church. You know, the pastor ought to know what a church is. And I realized that I didn't. And so this little five-part series that we're gonna do for the next five weeks is really just us all getting on the same page about what are we even talking about when we talk about a church? 
And we're not specifically in this series talking about this church. Um, sometimes when we do Discover Highlands, uh, people want to know, like, what makes this church unique? And there are a lot of things, um, some good, some bad. Um, but, but this is not a series as much about what makes this church unique. This is a series about what makes this church the same. This is a, is a series about the church, things that should be true of any healthy local church. That's what this series is about. So... Um, I hope that this series will be helpful to you, regardless of how you currently feel about the church. Some of you are maybe just curious about the church, and maybe you are new to the area, or something happened at your last church, and so you're just looking for a church, and maybe you wandered here today. And I hope that this is a series that gives some clarity for you as you think about what kind of church you're going to end up in. I hope that This is a series that can give you some things to look for in a church so that you'll end up in a healthy one, whether it's this one or whether it's a different one. Maybe you're curious in the sense that you're not even convinced that the church is a good thing. Maybe you're not a Christian and you got invited by someone or you're not a Christian, but you're just kind of curious about things and you're not convinced that the church is actually even a good thing for the world, but you're here. And I hope that this series is helpful for you to just find out what it should be like. Let's define the ideal before we start, you know, we, we all live in the real world. We know that. But, but here's what it should be. Here's the ideal. I hope this series could be helpful for you. Maybe you're somebody that's just kind of come to church for a while, off and on. And for years, you know, it just seems like the right thing to do. Your mom said you ought to come and you, you know, you want to do the right thing. And so you just, you're part of church, you know, stuff. But if you're honest, you're not really bought into the church because uh, there's just a lot of stuff there that doesn't make sense to you. And maybe there's just things about the feel of it that it's, I mean, these aren't my people, but you ought to come and, you know, give a little bit and sit through some stuff. But you're not really, like, into it. And I hope that this series gives you an idea of what the church can be if it's at its best. And I hope that you would be inspired by that. And so inspired that you would actually begin to commit your life to the church that it wouldn't just be something that you kind of have to do and, you know, it's Sunday and all right, but but you would actually like enjoy it and you would want to give your life to it. It would become something that you're passionate about. And then there's another group of you who you're committed to the church. You have been leading in the church in various ways. You love the church. And the reason that this series is still for you is because, like me, it's possible to be really involved in something and really passionate about something and giving a lot of time and energy and resources to something and still forget, wait, what is this thing about again? Why are we doing this? And so I hope that it's a reminder for you as well what we're trying to do here and why it matters. So that's why we're doing this series Um, I hope that it's helpful. 
Now, uh, to start, I just want to give an overview of where we're going, okay? Um, throughout the series, we're going to try to just form a very simple one-sentence definition of the church, okay? And so um, here it is, all right? The church is a community of people who, and then there's five things, and these are each of the five weeks, all right? So today, the church is a community of people who follow Jesus, It's a community of people who gather for worship. It's a community of people who publicly profess our faith through baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's a community of people who commit to one another. And it's a community of people who spread the gospel. That's what the church is. Now, that sounds simple. We're going to unpack it a little bit in this series. Today is just the introduction The church is a community of people who follow Jesus. And so what I want to do today is look at a passage of scripture that has been really helpful for me in reminding me what the church is supposed to be like. Now, what's interesting is this is actually not a passage about the church, okay? The passage that we're going to look at, um, Mark chapter 2, if you have a Bible, is where we're going to be. I want to be very clear up front. This is not a passage about the church. Okay, But it does give us a picture that can help us remember what the church is supposed to be. And so this picture that we're going to see in Mark chapter 2, we're going to use throughout the whole series um, because I think it's helpful to remember. Sometimes um, most of the passages in the New Testament that talk about the church um, are not stories or pictures. They're Um, letters. And so they're just like telling you to do stuff. But that can be sometimes hard to remember. It's helpful for me to have a picture. And so um, today we're going to look at this picture that can hopefully give us an idea of what the church is supposed to be. Make sense? So Mark chapter 2, today what we're going to do is walk through this text together to make sure we actually understand the text because we could be accused of ripping it out of context for today's message. So we want to make sure we understand what the passage actually teaches. And then we're going to apply that to the church and see these two pictures that it gives us of what the church can be, all right? So Mark chapter two, starting in verse one. Verses one and two give us the setting for this event. When he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, this city, this town, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. So these first two verses give us some interesting background. It says that Jesus entered Capernaum again. What does that imply? He'd been there before, right? So when had he been there before? Well, this is the brilliance of Bible reading is how do you find the answer to that question? You just look at what came before it, all right? So in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says they went into Capernaum. Okay, there's when he was in Capernaum the first time. Simple Bible reading, okay? Well, what did he do when he was in Capernaum the first time? Well, he taught with authority in the synagogue. People were impressed by the way that Jesus taught the scripture, the Old Testament. 
They were impressed by that. And then he also drove out an unclean spirit, or he drove out a demon from someone. That was also impressive. And so they realized Jesus's word has power. When Jesus speaks, whether he's teaching or whether he's driving out spirits, it's powerful. Jesus's word has power. And then while Jesus was in Capernaum, he was at the house of this man named Simon, Simon Peter. And Peter's mother-in-law had a fever and was sick and was laying in bed. And Jesus went and healed her. And she got up and began to work around the house. And people were like, what in the world? And so then they were impressed. Not only does Jesus teach, not only does he drive out demons, but he also heals. And so news began to spread about him in this city called Capernaum. And so a huge crowd began to gather at this house where Jesus was. And such a huge crowd came, Jesus began to heal all of their various things. The problem is people began to spread the news so much about Jesus that he couldn't stay in the town. And so chapter one, verse 45 says, that this guy that he has healed went out and began to proclaim it widely to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So Jesus, news has spread about him when he was in Capernaum the first time, huge crowd spread, huge crowd formed. He went out into other towns, news about him spread. There's so many people, he can't go into a town anymore. Instead, he's just staying out in the country and people are coming out to him. But now he's back in Capernaum again. And so when he entered Capernaum again, after some days, so it's been a while since he's been there, it was reported that he was back at home. He's back at the house where he started. So do you see why it would have been reported? Because news is spreading. Jesus is back. The guy who has power to do stuff with his word, the guy whose word can change things is here. And so many people gathered together and there was no more room and not even in the doorway. What does that mean? It means the house was so crowded that they couldn't get any more people in. And even in this big doorway in this house, you couldn't just line up outside the door and still hear what was going on anymore because the crowd was too big. Why does he tell us that little detail that the doorway was even too crowded? Because verse 33 of chapter one says, the whole town was assembled at the door. So the first time he was there, it was a huge crowd, but they could all kind of fit and kind of hear in through the doorway. Now there's not even room at the doorway. And Jesus is preaching to them. He's speaking God's word to them. And then here's what happens. Verse three, they came to him this unnamed group of people. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried 
by four of them. So there's this group of people who are trying to come to Jesus and they've got a paralytic with them. Paralytic is kind of a a vague term here. We don't know exactly in what way this man was paralyzed, but most likely he can't walk on his own. And so because of that, he's got to have somebody carry him. And so there are these four men who carry him on this mat. And they're trying to get to Jesus. Why would they want to get to Jesus? Because Jesus has demonstrated that his word has power. He can heal sickness. He can drive out demons. He can teach with authority. Surely he could do something about our friend's condition. So let's get him to Jesus. The problem is, verse four, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, because they can't get in, even at the doorway, it's too packed. They can't get to Jesus in the house. Because they were unable to because of the crowd, here's what they did. They removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So these guys think, wait a minute, we could just wait for Jesus to come out, and then he could heal. Why don't they do that? (laughs) I don't know, probably because there were a lot of guys in this group like you, you want to do it now. Let's just take care of this thing, man. We know how, we can solve this. There's no reason to wait around and make plans. That's what I do. That's my personality type. It frustrates people. I'm like, well, let's think about this for just a minute, all right, before we rush off and tear down the roof. Why don't we think this through? But these guys are the kind of guys you need if you're paralyzed. We'll just go up top and we'll just take the roof of the house off. And this is not like, well, but in those days, the roof wasn't really a real roof. It was like, uh, it's not like that. No, this is a real roof that literally the phrase, they removed the roof is they unroofed the roof. That's what it literally says. So they made the roof to where it was no longer a functional roof. And why did they do that? So they could get this paralyzed friend to Jesus. So Jesus is preaching and there's somebody on the roof, like in the Santa Claus. I think he's up there. But he keeps preaching. They begin to make a hole. They dig through it. Literally, it's like a destruction term that means to gouge it out. And then they lowered the mat down. Verse five. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, isn't that interesting? That's not why he's there. The guy is there because he's paralyzed. But Jesus sees 
their faith being demonstrated, including the man's faith, the paralytic man. Maybe it was his idea to get to Jesus. He sees their faith and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that reveals that Jesus knows something about humans that many times we don't even know. Jesus knows more about us than we do. And that's this, that regardless of what external problems that we might be facing, we have a root problem that needs to be addressed. This man is paralyzed, that needs to be addressed, but there is something even greater that needs to be addressed for this man. And that is, He's a sinner. He's a sinner. Not only can he not stand up before the people in the crowd, but he cannot stand up before a holy God. And that is the most fundamental problem that he has. And so Jesus sees the faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. On the basis of what? on the basis of the fact that this guy has come with the help of his friends simply because he trusts, he desperately believes that Jesus can help him. And that is the attitude, that is the spirit, that is the belief that God honors. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this man is coming humbly to Jesus. So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, after Jesus says that, it makes a lot of the people who are there really mad. Because verse six, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. That is, he's saying things about God that are not true. What has he said about God? Nothing. We would think, wait, he didn't say God. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. What's he, how is he saying something that's false about God? How is he spreading false rumors about God by saying, son, your sins are forgiven? Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, how dare you think that you're going to say this, man, sins are forgiven. Who are you? And Jesus, right away, verse eight, perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? It's actually a good question. I don't know. Both of them are easy to say, which one's easier to do? I don't know. But you don't have to think about it for long, verse 10, because Jesus says, but so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Verse 12, immediately he got up took the mat and went out in front of everyone. 
As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What is the point of this little passage? The point is that Jesus demonstrates the power of his word. Jesus's word gives life. Why is that true? Because God's word gives life. God spoke in the beginning and the world was created. Jesus speaks and all things are recreated. They're remade when Jesus speaks. People who are sick become well again. People who are tormented by demons are made whole again. People who are paralyzed can walk again. And people who are sinful can be forgiven. Jesus is demonstrating the power of his word. And by doing so, Mark is showing us that God is Jesus. When you think about God, think about Jesus. He demonstrates the power of his word. The right approach to that word is faith. That's the point of the story. What in the world does that have to do with the church? Well, I think that this story gives us two pictures that help us think about what the church is supposed to be. And here are the two pictures. First, the church is the paralytic. The church is the paralytic. We are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus. When you come to church on Sunday, what are you coming to? What is it? This story can be a picture to help you remember. Oh yeah, it's a bunch of paralytics who desperately need Jesus. We are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus. That's who we are. You can look around right now and that's who every single person here is. The fastest way for a church to become irrelevant is to forget that. The church becomes judgmental when we forget that because we think, well, we're good and y'all suck. And so uh, y'all need Jesus and somebody ought to tell you, but praise God, we got church today and we don't have to do that because um, <clears throat> that completely forgets who the church is. Not only can the church become judgmental when we forget this, but the church can become legalistic. We are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus, not another list of rules. We are broken sinners who need Jesus to say, you're forgiven. Based on what? Based on the fact that Jesus, the one who is equating himself with God by claiming to be able to forgive sins, Jesus is going to go to a cross and die for sinners so that sinners can be forgiven of their sins. 
Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. He is risen. He's risen indeed, you would have said last week, but it's, it's not Easter anymore. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is just as risen today. And he died and he rose so that broken sinners like us can stand before God. We are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus. That's who the church is. All of us bring dysfunctional thoughts and attitudes and actions to this place. We bring jealousy and greed and arrogance and self-harm and lust and hate. We bring adultery and lying and stealing and raising our voice and gossiping and bullying and manipulating. These are not cute things. We are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus. And praise God that Jesus has come for us. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus has come for sinners like me. Jesus has come for sinners like you. The church is a group of people who recognize we are broken sinners who desperately need Jesus. Just like the paralytic, we need to trust and depend on nothing but the power of Jesus and his word. The reason that we had 1 Peter chapter 1 read through chapter 2, we'll have the second part of that read next week. The reason for that is because that passage is saying in written form what this passage in Mark 2 is saying in story form. 1 Peter 1.23 says, because you have been born again, you have been made new, you have new life, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. What is it that makes people new? What is it that can transform sinners? What is it that can bring sinners from being stuck to a mat, paralyzed by their sin, to being able to rise and walk? What is it? It's the power of the word. Jesus still speaks today through his word. This word 
is the gospel that was preached to you. Paul says, James chapter one says, therefore ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The church is like the paralytic. We're broken sinners who desperately need Jesus, which means as a church, we are a community of people who forms together in order to hear from God in his word. Can you tell me again what God says? What would it look like for a church that gets this? A church that gets that we are like the paralytic. What would it look like? I think it would be a community of people who speak about sinners with mercy rather than judgment. When we talk about sinners, it's not from our high horse. Instead, it's with compassion. That doesn't mean we diminish sin. Sin is terrible. It literally kills you. It destroys your life. Stop sinning. But we don't talk about sinners, even in their most despicable moments with just, ugh, but instead with mercy and compassion. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners that God has forgiven through his son, Jesus. I think that this kind of community would be honest and willing to confess sins. It would be a place that feels down to earth because there's no pretending for the sake of saving face. It would be a place where prayer is regular and sincere because we know that we need God. It would be a place where worship is real. We were dead. We were destined for hell, but now we are alive and bound for glory. It would be a place that's eager to listen and obey God's word. It's God's word that gives life. And so we need to, to know what God says. That means that we would be a place that's eager for sermons to be about God. We would care more about the word being preached than the one who is preaching it. In our conversations, we would, it would be normal in this place for people to be discussing God's word because it's literally the life source. It would be normal for us to bring God's word into regular conversations. Rather than that being the exception, that would become the norm. It would be normal for these people to spend time reading God's word on their own because they want to get it in them because they know that it is the source that can help them stand up, rise, and walk. 
And I think we would organize our lives around God's word. Jesus said, wise people build their life on the rock. That is his words. Foolish people build their house on sand. That is, they ignore his words. And it all comes crumbling down when the storm comes. And so we want to build our lives. We want to organize our lives around what Jesus says. We want to do that as a church. We want to do that as individuals. We want to acknowledge God in all of our ways, in our relationship ways, in our friendship ways, in our marriage ways, in our parenting ways, in our financial ways, in our professional ways, in our leadership ways, in our church ways. In every single thing we do, we want to orient our lives around God's word because it's God's word that has the power to give life. People who don't know that they're broken sinners who desperately need Jesus, they think, I'll do this stuff on my own. I'll figure this out myself. We'll do what we think is best at church. Well, what makes you think that your ideas are going to be so successful? You're a broken sinner. <clears throat> the wisest thing you can do if you know you're a broken sinner is, I want to know what God says. Let's do that thing. If we're the paralytic, we're broken sinners who desperately need Jesus, then that means we need to hear what God says in his word. Here's a second picture. The church is the four friends. We are partners who work together to carry sinners to Jesus. That's who this is. Each of us are the paralytic. We know we got it. We, we need Jesus. And each of us are the four friends who pick up a corner of the map and say, let's get this stinking roof off so we can get our friends to Jesus. We are partners who work together to carry sinners to Jesus. This is who the church has always been. Listen to Acts chapter two, verse 42. They devoted themselves, they devoted themselves, okay? This is what they're giving themselves to. The same kind of devotion it takes to get the roof off of a house. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, how are those four things like trying to get your friend to Jesus through a roof? Why do you need to be devoted in the early church to the apostles' teaching? Because it's God's word that gives life. From the very beginning, this has been a community. The church is a community that is a learning community. We want to hear from God. We want to hear God's word. We want to orient our lives around God's word. Why? Because, because it gives life. And so notice that this is what they're doing together. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This isn't just for themselves. They're not just, I want to come and hear the word, but they're actually partnering together so that the community as a whole hears God's word. Fellowship. The word literally means partnership, like being business partners. And this means that they were giving their resources to support church members and leaders. And we see lots of examples of that throughout the book of Acts. So they're using their resources to be able to support this learning community where people will be able to hear God's word. 
but they're not just getting together to listen to the word all the time. It's not like a giant Bible study. That's not all the church is. They're also doing the breaking of bread. That refers to meals in general. And historically, the church has believed that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. So they're getting together to be with one another, to make friends with one another, and to remind each other of what Jesus has done. That's what the Lord's Supper is. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And then it says, and to prayer. And most translations and your translation probably says the prayers, the prayers, um, which I think is significant. These are specific prayers and set times of prayer, probably referring to the Psalms is my guess, but they were getting together for a specific purpose to pray. It's not just like, and they prayed. They had specific prayers. Why is that something that you would do if you're the four friends who are trying to get your friend to Jesus? Because prayer is one of the ways that we come before Jesus to seek him. Jesus, we want something that you have that we don't have. That's what prayer is. God, we need you to do something that we can't do. If we could do it, we wouldn't pray. We would just go work on stuff. But prayer is, God, I need you to do something I can't do. And so they're coming to God in prayer. Notice that all of these things, these four things happen together. These are corporate practices that carry the community to Jesus, that build up the faith in Jesus, that help people follow Jesus. This is who the church has always been. In Acts chapter six, they started organizing a food distribution for members of the church who couldn't afford food. In Acts chapter eight, the gospel spreads to Africa because Philip explains the word to a man from Ethiopia. In Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch sends missionaries to evangelize and plant churches. Why are they doing that? Because we're broken sinners who desperately need Jesus and we're the four friends who need to carry broken sinners to Jesus. And so we gotta get the word out. And so they send people to go and evangelize and to create churches, to create more communities that will be able to do this very thing. That's what they're doing. Acts chapter 15, the elders of the church gather to clarify theology. Why are they doing that? Because if it's God's word that gives life and God's word is getting distorted by false teaching, then God's word is not gonna be rightly understood and therefore it's not gonna give life. We've gotta protect what God's word actually means so that it can give life. So Acts chapter 15, they're just doing what four friends would do. They're making sure that the church is still gonna be a place that can carry people to Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul urges the elders in Ephesus to love the sheep and to be on guard because false teachers will distort truth. There are numerous examples of this that we could give. There are also numerous examples of the church organizing themselves so that they can obey God's word to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Ephesus, they started a widow's ministry where they'd visit and provide for widows. In Jerusalem, they were doing orphan care. In the church of Corinth, they were taking up an offering to send back to Jerusalem so that they could support physical needs. The church has always been like these four friends. Let's 
Make sure we've got a community that's supported so that we can hear the word. And then let's get organized so that we can help meet needs and carry people to Jesus. This means that we don't only need teachers and preachers. We also need administrators and leaders. The church is the four friends. We're partners who work together to carry sinners to Jesus. That's who we are. So we're the paralytic, we're the four friends. Therefore, the church is a community of people who follow Jesus. That's the way we're putting those two things together. The, the paralytic needs to get to Jesus. They're trying to follow Jesus. They're trying to get to Jesus. And the four friends are like, we gotta get these people to Jesus. That's who the church is. The church is a community of people who follow Jesus. The next four weeks, we'll get much, much, much more specific about what that might look like. Today, I just wanna leave you with two questions. First, do you have people in the church who carry you to Jesus? Do you have people in the church who carry you to Jesus? Do you have people that you can depend on here? Second, how intentionally are you partnering with others to carry more to Jesus? Do you have a corner of the map? The church is both of those things. We need to be carried and we need to carry. But we don't have to carry by ourselves. We partner with others to make sure that others can be carried. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us do this. Father, I praise you for sending your son. Thank you that he came to make forgiveness of sins possible. God, would we be a church who knows that we desperately need you? And God, would we be a church that partners together with one another to help other people get to you. God, would we be a church that is centered around your word, that loves our neighbors and meets practical needs just like these friends did. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?